Good day, everyone, and welcome to the University of Minnesota CropCast. I'm Seth Nave, and I'm here with my co-host, David Nikolai. He's out on the road uh, working some plots today, and so he's joining me from the Caribou Coffee. And so uh, we'll, uh, I'll be the primary host, and Dave's going to be my sidekick for today, so we'll mix this up a little bit. Uh, we've also got a couple special guests. We've been, uh, we've been talking specifically with a lot of university uh, faculty members in the last few weeks, uh, but we're right in the middle of harvest or back in harvest, depending on where you're at. And so we wanted to get kind of a feel for what's happening out in the country. Uh, so we've got two agronomists with us. We've got Jay Zilski. He's a field agronomist with uh, Pioneer Corteva. And Jared Goplin from Wiffles Hybrids. Uh, he's an agronomy manager there. So I'm going to introduce, uh, just give, since I gave you such a brief introduction, I'd like uh, each of you to just give us a little bit more of a history of, of your, uh, you and your company and where you're at, and then we'll uh, talk a little bit about the crop. So, Jay, I'll let you kick it off. Thank you, Seth. Uh, again, Jay Zilski, field agronomist for uh, Pioneer uh, in south-central Minnesota. been located in uh, North Mankato my entire uh, career. I've been fortunate enough to spend most of my career in the same uh, geography. Uh, this would be my uh, 31st year uh, in various roles with Pioneer, but uh, for the bulk of the time, I've uh, spent time uh, as a field sales agronomist and now as a, a field agronomist. Um, as I mentioned, I'm in North Mankato, Minnesota. The geography that I cover would extend uh, southward from Mankato down to the Mapleton area, uh, then over to, to Janesville, on up to uh, the uh, uh, Belle Plaine area, and then over to uh, Glencoe, Minnesota, and then back down uh, to the uh, Lafayette uh, area and over to, to North Mankato. So that's the geography that I cover and uh, anxious to kind of share observations because it varies a lot across that area this year. Very good. And Jared, give us a little bit about your history. You haven't been there for 31 years, but uh, uh, you were at the university more recently. So give us a little uh, bit of your uh, background. Yeah. So Jared Goplin, uh, agronomy manager here at Wiffles, and I've been here uh, about a year and a half. Uh, of course, before that, just a little more of uh, going back in time even further. Uh, of course, was at the University of Minnesota Extension. I uh, worked in a similar role to, role to Dave uh, for about five years there. Um, before coming over to, to Wiffles Hybrids and uh, worked primarily with forage and small grain crops, of course, when I was at the university, but uh, dabbled in soybeans and corn as well. Uh, prior to that, of course, went to grad school uh, at the University of Minnesota and uh, worked in a, a weed, seed, uh, weed seed bank uh, project with uh, Dr. Jeff Gonzalez, uh, counted lots and lots of giant ragweed seeds, uh, hand harvested some corn, as I understand Jay might have the opportunity to do some of that uh, later this week here. But uh, yeah, since coming to Wiffles, I guess the geography that I cover uh, as an agronomy manager, basically is southern Minnesota, uh, and then a couple counties on the eastern edge of South Dakota, and then down into that northwestern corner of Iowa. So, uh, like I said, been here about a year and a half. Uh, you know, Wiffles is probably a new company, a new name, I guess, to a lot of your listeners. So, uh, you know, Wiffles is a, a family-owned seed company that's uh, only only sells seed corn. So that's all we do is is corn. And uh, based out of eastern or sorry, western Illinois, so just east of the Quad Cities, about 20 minutes um, in uh, in the small town of Geneseo. Uh, so family owned business still from there, uh, doing only seed corn, uh, selling mostly just in the central corn belt. So, so, yeah, it's good to be good to be on here and uh, yeah, talk about the crop this year. Yeah, thank you, Jared. As long as we've got you, give us a little bit of tell us a little bit about where you're at and in, in harvest, especially right around where you're living. I know that's probably where you've got the most. Uh, knowledge you have you're farming a little bit on the side as well and 
give us an idea of what you've got right there in West Central Minnesota and then the rest of your area. What what kind of um, soybean acreage has been harvested and how much corn has been pulled out of the fields? Yeah, this is kind of a weird year, uh, at least in this area locally. You know, variability, I guess, is going to be, I think, the word to describe almost everywhere this year. Uh, just whether you're talking soil types or whatever, you know, whatever the difference was, there's a lot of a lot of things that went into this year, but uh, things are very variable uh, here locally. You know, so I live uh, live between the Canby and Dawson area farm uh, north and west of Canby. And uh, this area, you know, I'd say there's probably more corn out than there is soybeans. Uh, guys would really like to get into the soybeans. But of course, we've had some some really humid, rainy, uh, just incredibly wet weather the last week or week and a half. Uh, that's really kept people out of the, the soybeans. Um, and prior to that, you know, some of the soybeans weren't quite ready yet. Um, you know, so I've actually talked to a few people uh, in the area south of me that are are thinking they'll just finish corn before even moving into soybeans, which, you know, I certainly can't remember a, a time where that's that's occurred. You know, typically, you know, you might do a few corn acres before you move into the soybeans uh, to, to give them some time to get ready. But uh, it's pretty rare that you finish up on corn before going into soybeans. And I think that's just the way the year's been. Uh, part of it's just the incredible amount of heat that we've had. You know, I'd, it's been probably a couple of weeks now since I looked at an updated uh, GDU map. But, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were like close to 300 GDUs ahead of normal. So just some incredible heat, you know, and a lot of that came in, in May and early June, um, you know, when you can really kind of get ahead of the clock in terms of GDUs. Um, you know, but that crop, you know, thought it was a little bit later than what the calendar said. And of course, when you still get some 90 degree weather and, and you got, you know, mature corn and soybeans, things dry down pretty quickly. Uh, so harvest progress, I don't know, probably in the 40, I'd say 40% ish range. Uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. Some guys are, are, are done with more beans and corn and, and vice versa. Um, but yeah, as, as you move further South, the areas that caught more rain, the crop is still fairly wet uh, and they've kind of been waiting. Progress is a lot slower and areas that didn't. Uh, things maybe died died prematurely on the lighter soils. Uh, things are a lot further ahead. You know, uh, Jay, I'm actually a little bit closer to you today. I'm out here by the uh, Glencoe area. Uh, Seth and I are on a, a weed seed destructor plot uh, with a combine with a, one of our cooperators here in the area. But how do things look in your neck of the woods in terms of harvest and how things are going? It's It's been pretty warm here uh, this weekend. It's supposed to cool down here a little bit, but uh, I think things are going ahead, correct? Things are moving at a rapid pace here. It echoes some of uh, Jared's thoughts as well, that I think this uh, in combination of the dry and then the heat we we experienced in early September um, pushed the crop along uh, very rapidly. And so, you know, I, I think I've had some folks uh, rolling with corn harvest uh, for close to a month now, almost a month. Uh, and having said that, that's kind of isolated locations. I think generally, I would say uh, corn harvest uh, is probably about, I'd say, 20% complete in, in my geography, uh, particularly as I go north of Mankato. South of Mankato, there was large portions of replant that occurred back in May with some of those really heavy rains. And so there's either portions of fields or entire fields that were replanted the latter part of May. So not a whole lot of corn harvest down in uh, that area. And I'd say uh, I was out of the area over the weekend here, but if I had to put a finger on on soybean harvest, I'd say we're about, uh, you know, probably closer to 10% uh, soybean harvest. It's going to go uh, fast here uh, with the uh, with the weather weather we have in the forecast here as well. And, uh, you know, I think folks are, are pleased and maybe somewhat surprised uh, as they've gotten into the corn, you know, we're already down into the low 20s as far as harvest moisture content on this corn. 
Yeah, so surprised in terms of moisture or surprise for yields, Jay? Let's talk Let's talk corn first here. Well, uh, Seth, I always t tell folks, you know, if you, uh, generally folks are uh, seem to be pleasantly surprised and pleased as far as where corn yields are at, uh, considering how dry we were in much of the area. Um, I always joke with folks, you know, if you set your expectations low enough, they're likely to be met or exceeded. And so this year, uh, I think thus far in harvest, I think people have been really quite pleasantly surprised. I know I had one of our product knowledge plot cooperators who told me back in August, um, he was too embarrassed. He didn't want anybody to see his name associated with the plot because uh, he looked at it from the grain bins. It looked like it was under a lot of stress and uh, he was going to harvest it at night so that uh, we wouldn't be able to get the harvest results. And yet uh, that plot came off uh, a week and a half ago and the plot averaged about 226 bushels a acre. So, uh, you know, I think as a more, you know, kind of general rule, what we're finding thus far is, you know, on some of the better soils, uh, folks are probably uh, knocking out, you know, in that 190 to 210 bushel a acre range. You know, that's probably, you know, 30, 40 bushels off of what they might normally have had in some of those same situations. Um, better fields and soils, again, on soybeans running 60, 65, but we get to some of the challenging fields. And then we're probably closer to 150 to 175 bushels on corn, you know, 45 to low 50s on beans. But I think uh, as bleak as things had looked uh, at points in time during the summer where maybe you only get five, six inches of rain since the end of May, I think folks are generally pleasantly surprised at what the yields have been. So I see a lot of variability within fields, not not only between fields, but within fields. And I think that probably that's one of the things I think farmers cue in on. You mentioned, you know, your your farmer that was looking off the bin. And I think a lot of what we end up our eye looks for is that variability, especially in corn. And then that that really kind of turns our um, our opinion downward. Um, what uh, what are the guys saying about uh, yield monitor uh, information as they're going through these fields? If you're getting 200 bushel yields. There has to be some some pretty poor areas in some of these fields. So what are the what are they peeking out at in some of these it's, areas? It's it's easy to see a uh, you know hundred maybe even hundred and fifty bushel swing in some of these fields. I had a guy mention uh, a week ago he was seeing a tickle in three hundred bushels in some spots uh, in the heavy low ground, and he got some lighter ground. It was back to to one hundred and fifty. So that's kind of an extreme situation on corn. Uh, I had a text message yesterday from. Uh, a farmer and you know, he was experiencing 80, 90 bushel uh, beans in the best areas and then some lower areas of the field where he had some challenges. Believe it or not, um, this is to the south of Mankato with uh, white mold and it was down to 35 in those low areas. So yes, uh, highly, highly variable. Uh, agronomists are always accused of using that term um, and certainly things are variable every year, but this year I think uh, we should say extreme variability in 2023. Yeah, I think soil type is really the driver here. Um, I mean, I, 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 we, we, I think we just kind of, you know, in talking about some of the challenges this year, it seems to be driven, you know, the that where the way inter, the water interacts with soil and soil type and um, the quantity and quality uh, factors all the way around. It's just, it just seems like when we get a little dry conditions, it really amplifies all these things. I. It reminds us when we have good, timely rains in a summer and it rains a couple inches every week all the way through July and August that, um, you know, every acre can really produce for us. But um, it's, it's years like this where 
I think it really shows off between fertility and rotations and tillage and cover crops and, you know, residue, all those things seem to just blow up on us this year. And, and, um, and, uh, so what, maybe go back to Jared, what, what kinds of calls did you get? What kinds of things did you see out there? What kind of challenges in your areas did, did were really peak this year with the dry conditions? Yeah. So just kind of to go back to your comments on previous crop and fertility, you know, I think those are two things that are becoming a lot more apparent, you know, in the areas where guys are a little further into harvest, you know, anytime we are dry through that summer period, you know, you know, you spread fertilizer on a field and it's all in that top a couple of inches, but you know, that's not where the crop was drawing moisture from the majority of the summer this year. So uh, I guess some of the things that, you know, of course we've seen is, you know, personally and, and on a wider scale is just, uh, you know, the areas that maybe had a heavy manure history or, you know, higher fertility rates, you know, maybe owned ground where guys have been pushing fertility, you know, maybe higher than, than uh, I guess, you know, kind of the average, uh, those fields seem like they're looking a lot better this year. Um, you know, as opposed to the ones where, you know, maybe fertility levels were, you know, maybe more moderate or on the lower end, um, you know, just because, you know, the, the nutrient levels were a little more limited and when you don't have water, you know, especially things like potassium, I guess, and, and nitrogen seems like those are two, I guess, that, that I guess my, my gut tells me, you know, those were probably a couple of them that were at play, maybe a little bit more. Um, but then previous crop too, you know, personally, we've, we, uh, harvested a, a field that, um, you know, it was a half section that some of it was hay ground last year. Some of it was uh, wheat and some of it was soybeans. The, the stuff that was, you know, at old hay ground was, was terrible. Of course, the yield map there was all red because, you know, with only what about maybe 10 or 11 inches of rain since it was planted and there was nothing in the subsoil from last year, you know, with hay, it being hay, you know, the, the yields were, you know, sub triple digits. Well, actually we did, did make, it was like 100.8. So I, I was surprised. Um, you know, but then you move into the, the stuff that was on wheat ground right next to it and it averaged, uh, you know, about 170, uh, and then into the bean ground, it was, you know, about another 10, 15 bushels off of that. So, you know, it is a year where water availability, you know, soil types are going to be huge. And, you know, I guess it's a year where some of those soil types haven't shown themselves maybe since 2012 or other extreme drought years, you know, typically the soils look more uniform, but you know, you're like this where, where that subsoil moisture, uh, you know, makes a big difference or even over tile lines, you know, that's earlier in the year, you know, if the crop looked better over tile lines, um, you know, whether it was just, you know, maybe there was a spring uphill from that uh, or extra water uphill from that tile line and it seeped out through that perf those perforations or whatever happened there. But, um, but yeah, it is, it is interesting. And, and, you know, as guys are in the combine, I guess, looking at yield maps and everything, you know, it's, it's good to take note, note of those things, especially if you're doing any types of uh, variable rate type stuff, whether it's fertility or, or uh, seeding rates, those types of things, you know, these are the types of years where you can learn a lot learn a lot from a field and, and what kind of variability is out there. Yeah. I want to come, I want to come back to that late. Sorry, Dave, I keep running over you. Um, uh, but I do want to come back to that question at the end here, what we can learn from all this and let's Dave, what, what was your question? What I'd like to let you get in here. Well, I was going to comment on the fact that early on in late August, we had the pro farmer crop tour and we had the USDA estimates and, and they had us pegged that a lot of Minnesota is averaging 174, 175 bushel per acre. Uh, but I was talking to Seth and, and other people too, and, and even out here in the Glencoe area where I'm at today, um, you know, we're, we're well over, you know, 20 bushels per acre, uh, higher than that in some of these places. Now, of course, Eastern Minnesota, north of Twin Cities, no, and southeast, I get that too. It's it's a lack of rainfall. But do we owe this a lot to um, fertility or just timely rains or 
our genetics need to get more credit here than we've given them in, in terms of the stress. What are your thoughts in, in terms of that? Um, and anything about, you know, selecting for 2024? Well, certainly as, as seed guys, we'd like to pat ourselves on the back and take credit for, for all of that. And uh, as one who was around back in 1988, the last extreme drought we had here, uh, you know, we are substantially different as far as where we're at for yields this year, you know, probably uh, close to uh, 100 bushels better, 50 to 100 bushels better than we were in that particular year. But I think the thing is, you know, uh, that we, we can talk about the, the genetics, and yet we also have some situations here where there's a lot of variability and, uh, you know, same genetics or similar genetics and, and really tying into, you know, Jared's comments about fertility and some of the impacts that that really has. Uh, you know, he, he did an excellent job outlining and talking about nitrogen and potassium and uh, management of those nutrients. And I think in a year such as this, where what are normally subtle differences, whether it be soil types or management things with regard to fertility uh, nitrogen source and timing of application in a year such as this, extreme as it is, those those differences then just are magnified. And so, yeah, a lot of it goes to uh, to genetics, but I think it also goes down to uh, to management as well. Yeah, we um, I think us academics always like to oversimplify a lot of things, uh, and um, you know we we have a hard time communicating exactly the right level of of uh, detail to to farmers to help them out in various situations. And I think we've talked so much about sampling in that top six to eight inches of soil. And, you know, so farmers really get thinking about their soil as that top six inches. And um, they just, you know, there's, there's, there's always thoughts about water down below, but um, the idea that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of mineralization going on deeper down um, and, and the intersection with tillage and, and previous crops, I think, is, again, really, really highlights some of the, the complexities that we've got going on out there in years like this. I think the other factor, too, that was playing into all this is if we think back to that, you know, early June time frame in these areas that were dry or, you know, Jay, you know, some of your territory, you know, and mine as well, you know, experienced some excessive rainfall and some replants, some, you know, poor root development conditions. I guess that's the other thing that's kind of come around, you know, and then there's some pockets that have had some rootworm, uh, extended diapause rootworm uh, feeding, uh, for instance, um, you know, but root development in these fields was not ideal, I would say, in, in some cases where the soil was just really fluffy. And and even uh, just here last week had a call on, you know, the soil just feels like you just tilled it up. You know, there's just no firmness in that upper soil pro profile. Um, you know, of course, if that soil's all fluffy and it was dry all summer, those roots aren't going to develop and explore that part of the soil. So, you know, I think that's the other factor that it all kind of ties back into the areas that maybe had poor root development earlier in the year, too, is going to influence, you know, how those things experience the extreme stresses late in the season, too. And it's it just, yeah, I mean, that's going to be variable across the field, too, and soil types as well. So that that's where the extreme variability, I think, is a great way to put it. The other side of that coin is really interesting, though, is that um, we the, it's it's amazing that this crop could limp along on some of that excess rain that we had from the very beginning. You know, I'm I've got a plot uh, area where we do some drainage work just south of Jay at um, uh, near uh, north of Wells by Minnesota Lake, and we were able to just kind of barely sneak the corn and soybeans in at the very end of all the heavy rainfall, and um, 
it basically we didn't get any rain the rest of the year and we've got tremendous yields down there uh, that that crop just completely was dependent on um, soil moisture reserves from excess rain during may so we're really interesting to look interested to look at how our our drain tile uh, really affected us this year because that's a site where we actually get nicked um, uh, by drainage when we do have dry weather in August because we drain out a little extra a little, little bit little bit extra water out of it so we'll we're going to be really interested to see what happens uh, at that site this year but overall yields are just uh, unbelievable relative to the amount of rainfall we had during the actual crop cropping season. You know, on that topic, hey, yeah. I have a I have a neighbor that's uh, kept detailed uh, weather records for uh, him and his father have, and his comment to me, I know a year or two ago, was that we lose way more yield in a wet year than a dry year. You know, and I think that's kind of becoming apparent, I guess, in years like this where, you know, you might lose those wet areas. It kind of flip-flops, right? The areas that you a lot of times lose the flooding are, are the ones that are yielding really well this year. Yeah, and those flooded areas, the, the problem with those is is those go to zero or, yeah, or we get a replant and then there are maybe, you know, 60% of the, the yield or something like that. And so, um, yes, we've got some dry areas and some hilltops and some sandy areas that, that yields dip a little bit, but um, compared to those big zeros that we have and the effort it takes to get out and, and replant or, or control weeds in those is, is, a, is a lot different, is, a, is a, just a different story, I guess. In my experience over the years here in South Central Minnesota, we tend to have our best crops when we have somewhat below normal rainfall. And, uh, you know, granted, this was <laughs> extreme in that regard, but but to your point, Seth, yeah, you know, uh, it's rare. I don't say it doesn't happen, but the, those areas of a zero in a drought year in our part of the world are far less than the areas where we have a zero when we have excess uh, or e even even ample rain uh, in the area as well. And, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking here over the past week as some of the soybean yield results have come in it's like gosh it's when you think of how little rain we had on the back side of the summer which is supposed to be so critical for soybeans and yet we're coming up with some of these yields and you know Seth I pity you for being a soybean guy because I've always my entire career trying to understand a soybean you know trying to guess yields and then this year I keep wondering is what some of what we lost due to the dry weather Okay, and just in, in water uptake by the soybean plant, was that balanced out to a certain degree by relative lack of foliar diseases in soybeans? I, I wonder if that kind of, you know, kind of counteracted that to a certain degree because it just doesn't make sense so far for some of these numbers we're seeing on soybeans to date. Yeah, that's a mystery to me, and I, I guess I would argue against it. I we just, uh, it's hard to believe that we could have disease level, but we do have a lot of hidden diseases. You know, some of our brown stem rots, and and even the SDSs that pop up later, some of those things, and then you add SCN into that. But um, a lot of the diseases that we have in soybean, we probably don't account for the yield losses very well. And so um, it's it's possible if you sum all those up that that maybe we're we're getting something. It's hard to believe that that the difference could be you know as great as that that um, the rainfall deficiency, but it's certainly possible. So what uh, what did you see out there in terms of soybeans? I'm I'm really curious from Jared's area, especially where his home place is out there. I was out to um, 
the Danvers area, Benson Danvers area, a couple weeks ago, and I could just see every single soybean field I saw had these areas as they matured. They had areas that looked like they were just dying uh, in those fields, little spots in them where you get this kind of ugly green color. Um, you know, that can't be very good for that crop. Have, have, have you heard much of those fields coming out or are we still, have you still not had a lot of ho- soybean harvest to be able to really see what those are like? Yeah. So personally, I mean, we, we, uh, we've got about 80 acres done, uh, kind of in the middle of the night on, I think Friday night when <laughs> they're finally just barely dry enough, but that's, that was hundred percent my observation. The areas where the beans died naturally, they were really good, you know, in yields in this, this field were 40 to 70 on a, on a field that I would have, I would have been happy, you know, with 45 bushels this year, given the year and it averaged, uh, just about 60, you know, high fifties, which I was, I was amazed, truly amazed at. Uh, but you know, as you're going through, through the field, those areas that still had leaves, um, those are the poorest areas of the field, you know, cause they died a little prematurely and, and they just, you know, they didn't have the, the bushels there compared to the areas that, that threshed really easily. And, and, uh, you know, died, I guess, more naturally, um, you know, they were really, really way better than, than I had anticipated. And, you know, cause some of those droughty areas, of course, you know, you look at the, the seed size and the seed size is small, of course, as, as we anticipated, but, uh, in those better areas, the seed size was much larger than I had, I had expected. Jay, what do you, what are you hearing in your areas relative to what the soybean, I know you, you, you mentioned that you're not going to, uh, estimate yields in these areas, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, how, how do you said they, they, the soybeans tend to yield better than everybody thought. Is that because they yield better than they looked or better than they thought that they should yield based on the year? Well, I think Seth, the way I'll, I'll answer that is the way you, you teed it up with, with Jared. I saw some of the same things in, in my geography where these fields, what would we say second week of September had that grayish green cast. The beans were definitely under drought stress. Then we got the 90 degree temperatures and some winds. And like I say, th- those are brown areas where they were hanging on to the leaves yet. And I haven't seen any harvest results from areas that look like that yet because i'm very curious because you could see the upper few nodes of the plant there were maybe a handful of pods there and any beans that were there were very very small in size and so to date um i haven't heard of any reports from fields that look that way uh, but we'll be um, interested to see and and you know for me i i see something like that and i start saying okay that's going to be, you know, uh, you know, if we're in in the 40s for beans and spots like that, I think we'd be darn lucky. Um, pods on the lower part of the plant, we had some good sized beans on the lower part of the plant, but I don't think nearly enough to make up for some of those challenges on the upper part of the plant. Back in early August, we got some rains. People all of a sudden were just really optimistic about what soybeans were going to do because this is just what we needed. And then after that first week or two of August, Things shut off again and we had that that heat in the dry weather pushing things uh, fast to harvest so it's probably a, a good no answer answer seth uh, but uh, i'm curious about some of the same areas myself yeah i think had we had one or two more inches of rain in that late august period i mean that would have really done a lot for us i think it would have really taken us um i i think we everybody wanted more water all year long but just looking back at it, we just we just about had enough water to get the crop, the soybean crop through, but just not quite. I think that's really what happened. And I think that kind of what you're describing the crop is kind of what I've been seeing. And it makes me think that we just about got there. But 
Um, just not quite. So, it, it, you know, fortunately, we've got these indeterminate soybeans that do put a lot of energy into putting pods on down low on the plant early on. And, and uh, I always look at the top of the plant for the yield to kind of give me an idea what that, those fields are going to do. And I think that gives us a little bit of an idea if it's going to be, you know, 65 or 75 or 85. But the reality is, is you get you get 40 or 50 bushels down on the very bottom of the plant. And, and uh, so it, it, it's, it's more resilient in that way. So going back to Dave's question about, you know, crop, um, you know, resiliency and genetics or, um, you know, uh, agronomy. I mean, I really have to give it to the, to the breeders. Cause even from a, if you look at it from a micro level or a macro level, we've, I do a lot of work with overseas buyers and things and looking, talking to a lot of, um, economists about yield trends globally. And some of these big disasters and crops in South America and in the U S because of droughty conditions. And we still end up yielding both corn and soybeans at trend line or above. Um, you know, where it just continues to baffle all of the traders, um, you know, and farmers know that they're not in a weather market anymore. It doesn't seem like the weather even impacts the yield very much anymore. And that's partly due to these, uh, good, um, good genetics we've gotten. The soybeans and the corn are both just seem to be a lot more resilient out there. I think we can, we can do a lot more. And I think farmers see it on their own farms, but you can see it all the way up to state and national and global um, yield levels and production. I wanted to ask uh, both of you now that you've had an opportunity to walk fields, obviously, and see some of these preliminary yields come in. What kinds of advice um, would you would give our Minnesota farmers for 2024? First of all, based on crop rotation, you know, we've had some instances of corn rootworm, and you know, there's always a corn on corn. And I, I know Jared, you're selling a lot of corn, but you know, in terms of that. What are your recommendations on that? Maybe a little bit on trade, and then what about uh, some other, any other disease or or uh, packages and so forth going forward? Anything stand out, or uh, do we just go back to the tried and true in terms of making recommendations? Because sooner or later, they're already looking at obviously their their seed choices for next year. But so kind of you know looking forward, where do you think growers should go in terms of uh, making some of the best selections? Yeah. So if you want me to go first, I guess before I forget, you know, years like this where we do have some extreme stress uh, variability out there, you know, the first, I guess, and I think most important kind of piece of advice is to not make rash decisions based on something you see just this year or just locally. You know, anytime you're making hybrid or, or variety selections, you know, it's important to obviously utilize multiple locations and, and locations from a larger geography than what you may may think. Uh, just because, you know, next year, you know, if you could predict next year and tell us exactly what you're going to get for weather, it'd be easy uh, to make some of those selections. But the reality is there's a lot of unknowns there. So um, I guess don't kind of pigeonhole yourself just based on some of the observations you made this year. Um, you know, it was a really good opportunity to make some sort of stress test observations, I think, in areas, whether you had too much rain early or or dry late. Um, but I guess that's kind of the, I guess the, one of the most important, I think, pieces of information there on, on going forward from a dry year. Um, yeah. And the, in terms of the, the corn rootworm uh, topic, of course, that's been, I guess, one of the biggest things that I've uh, dealt with this summer. Um, and of course, extended diapause, uh, corn rootworms being, uh, I guess, a surprise in some areas, um, you know, where, you know, a fraction, about half, maybe, or less than half of those uh, corn rootworm uh, eggs will basically sleep an extra year uh, and, and emerge in those the corn once you go back into corn in a, in a corn soybean rotation. 
uh, I guess it surprised some guys um, in, in some pockets. And, and the amazing thing there is it's not every field, you know, there's, there's plenty of areas you go into one field and it's uh, terrible. You know, there's tons of rootworm, rootworm feeding, uh, but you know, the field right next door, there's nothing. So uh, it's important to kind of evaluate back. And I know I'm terrible at remembering what I even had for lunch yesterday, but um, trying to think about what you, you know, what was different in that field, you know, two or four years ago, you know, a lot of these issues probably started in 2019, I know I've had a lot of guys comment, well, that was the only field planted early or the only field planted in an area. And I think it congregated some of those beetles. Um, you know, so it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily going to have an issue uh, going forward in those those places. But uh, of course, if you expect them, um, you know, insecticides and and uh, in the below ground rootworm trade, it still work pretty well on, on the northern corn rootworm uh, populations, uh, which are the issues, I guess, in these rotated acres as opposed to the westerns. Before we go to Jay, I'd, I'd like to follow up with one of your first points about, you know, not to, you know, make real rash decisions on this. So what do you guys think on, you know, these bigger, bigger questions around no-till or uh, cover crops or, you know, crop rotations and things like that in a year like this? Is this, is this going to dissuade some people from, from doing some of the things that, that a lot of us would consider, you know, going, being a little bit progressive and going the right direction? Uh, is it gonna gonna hurt us a little bit on some of those things? I think that uh, in a situation such as you mentioned there, I think the key thing for everybody to to remember is just how extreme this year was. <laughs> and so, if some of these practices, this was me maybe either their first or second year uh, implementing some new production practice, and and then they have the challenges associated with this year. And I think then the person needs to ask himself, okay, you know, when was the last time we saw a year like this, like this year? How likely is it to repeat itself and and not to be discouraged uh, if they had, uh, you know, less than desirable results this year? Um, but then having said that, um, you know, still see search and see, okay, are there some things that we can take from this year and implement in the future? Uh, you know, made reference earlier to positional availability of of nitrogen. Is this something that a person can do there uh, with, uh, so that we have some deeper place sources of nitrogen in, in the event that we happen to have uh, an, another dry uh, type of season as well? Yeah, I think a lot of those things, I kind of like to frame them in terms of resiliency, you know, so are there are there changes we can make that help us deal with a dry year a little bit better, but don't, you know, negatively impact us in a, in a, in a normal year, I guess, either, you know, so I think your comment on deep placement of nitrogen, you know, of course, there's a lot of conversation and, and observations on cover crops, you know, any year where you're short on water, <laughs> you know, uh, and you use a little bit more, same as my, my hay example, you know, previous crop, you know, is going to be a similar, similar response to, you know, cover crops or other things that are using a lot of water. Uh, the reality is a lot of years we don't use a lot of water by our cover crops uh, anyways. Um, but yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to just whether or not we can predict, you know, the future weather, you know, what, what do you expect? You know, I know there's a lot of kind of old timers that have said drought moves from west to east. And, uh, you know, I tell you what, I was out to the Black Hills in late August and I've never seen things so green uh, once you get to about the center of South Dakota. So I'm holding out for, you know, eternal being an eternal optimist that uh, the drought won't be quite as extreme next year. Um, you know, we return to uh, certainly at some point uh, a more normal weather pattern, I guess. Whatever, Jay, that, any, whatever uh, that is. Last right? comments. Yeah, I was well, going to say any, any last comments, Jay, on uh, maybe on, on I'm going to pin you down on a crop rotation here and what are your aspects and, and so forth a little bit more on that uh, rootworm thing before we let you go. So I think, uh, you know, a couple of things here. You referenced the 
earlier about things we can learn for this year from this year for 2024. Jared did a great job outlining some things relative to to corn rootworm in a lot of our area where we're in every other year corn bean rotation. Those observations this year are going to be applicable to 2025. You know, now our challenge is for guys, and I'm like Jared, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, is to then ask farmers, okay, do you recall what you saw in 2022? Okay, did you see some some root lodging in some of your fields in 2022, because then that will impact that decision as far as uh, corn traits, as far as uh, whether it be uh, below ground rootworm protection or the utilization of a, a corn rootworm um, insecticide as well. And I think, you know, shifting gears to the to the soybean side of things, um, you know, I think uh, several times Seth has made reference to soybean cyst nematode. And, you know, my observations over the years have been that the impact from uh, soybean cyst nematodes has been greater in some of our stressier environments. We certainly had that this year. And, you know, have people been utilizing the same source of resistance to manage that soybean cyst nematode year after year after year? If they have, then uh, it's time for them to consider maybe switching to an alternate source of resistance, you know, something such as Peking, if that's if they've been uh, stuck in uh, using 88788 over the years. And I guess the final thing as well um, is, is just, uh, you know, soil sampling. You know, we talked about the fact that with these, the dry weather could magnify the impact of some things, particularly start talking about soil potassium levels. You know, have people been testing these fields on a regular basis? If not, let's make sure we get that done, get things squared away for 2024 and beyond. Excellent. All great words of wisdom from a couple great agronomists here. So I uh, give you guys an opportunity to chime in on anything that we didn't touch on. Uh, anything that farmers should know um, based on what you've observed this year or things they should think about for next year? I think the one thing uh, we haven't touched on is the uh, black corn, the black dust. I guess that's gotten to be uh, incredibly widespread across, you know, really uh, everywhere. Um you know, basically this black uh, fungus that's been growing on corn and soybeans alike, you know, being a saprophytic uh, fungi, uh, basically, um, that are eating dead stuff. So that's one of those things that's not a disease of the crop. I know that's one of the things that always comes up. Uh, it's just things that come in after the crops died and, and it eats dead stuff. Uh, so it's eating those dead leaves, husks, uh, pods, whatever it might be. And, of course, makes a dusty mess. Looks like you uh, mixed oil and dust and sprayed it on everything. Um, and of course it can plug up air filters. So I guess that's my kind of one, one piece of advice is if guys are, are listening, you know, while they're getting ready to, to get back in the combine, uh, grab an extra air filter and keep that handy. <laughs> Stock up on Windex. No kidding. That's an excellent, uh, comment Jerry, because I think it's one of the things, but there's been so much talk, you know, a year ago, there's a lot of discussion in corn about tar spot. You know, dry weather we've had this year, tar spot hasn't been there. Now we see this black dust and in black fungi growing on the corn plants, folks start wondering, is that uh, tar spot or not? And certainly if you can rub it off or if it dusts up in the air, that's not tar spot. Uh, again, you know, return to more normal weather conditions. We might see it cry, crop itself, crop up again um, a, a year from now. Uh, as far as diseases in corn, they'll seem to be kind of the, the buzzwords coming into this year was tar spot. End of the year, we're going out with a lot of questions and concerns about corn rootworm management. And and, and again, uh, you know, challenge farmers as, as we're looking ahead, what they see this year for corn rootworm, that impacts the 2025 decision. Now work at 
Okay, what are they going to want to do next year, trait-wise in rootworm management? Uh, Dave, you made reference to to crop rotation, where we have corn uh, western corn rootworm. One of the best things we can do is break that rotation, uh, break that lack of a rotation, uh, and put soybeans out there. That's right. I think the only guarantee for next year is that it won't be exactly like this year. Um, so um, you know, that's that's part of part of what we learn farming is that there's. It's just uh, you never get a redo on these things. There's always new. It's always something else. So with that, I think I'm going to wrap wrap it up. I really appreciate you guys uh, talking to us early on uh, Monday morning. We're going to try to get this out for folks to listen to while they're in their cabs or in their trucks. And um, and I hope everybody uh, has a safe and, uh, um, you know, fruitful harvest here coming up. So again, thank you to Jay Zilski and Jared Goplin and David Nikolai for joining me this morning. And uh, this is uh, Minnesota CropCast. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye.